Preaching through John is a little bit like sending a kid into a candy store. What's my favorite? Where do I go next? How much can I absorb? Or maybe a little more appropriate, like sending me to Texas State Brazil. Like, do I like the filet better? Do I like the strip better? Do I like the chicken, the sauces? Everything is good. And every week we're like, this is one of the most important passages in John. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible. And no, it sounds like a broken record, but it is. You know, it's like, how do you pick your favorite passage in John? What is the most important? It's like, how do you pick your favorite child? Don't answer that. Every week, I think that I understand the passage until I meditate on it for the week. Then I realize, okay, this might be the most important passage in John. Because I I want us to consider something before we get into this text. Because chapter 17, there is no comparison to this chapter in the entire Bible. And just consider a a question. Imagine if we could listen to Jesus' prayers. Imagine if we could just be a fly on the wall and hear God in the flesh talk to the Father in heaven. Imagine if there was any way to understand the Father and our salvation and who Jesus is from Jesus himself. If there was any way to go inside the mind of Christ in his last hours on earth. But wait, we can. This is incredible. I mean, there is not enough superlatives that have been created in the English language to be able to describe this. Jesus finishes this discourse with the disciples, and he lifts his eyes up to heaven, and he utters these words. He talks to the Father plainly in front of them, and the Holy Spirit recorded it through the hand of John for our reception. And this is just amazing. And as I'm reading commentators and theologians and pastors throughout history, I wish I could share all of their their quotes with you because as you meditate on this passage, it just strikes you at how incredible this is. One of them that just uh, I've been meditating on throughout the week, Thomas Manton, a, a Puritan, he reminds us that the same voice, the Word of God that spoke creation into existence and sustains it by the Word of His power, is speaking to the Father in the earshot of the disciples. And that same sustaining word that keeps the world in existence keeps this intercessory prayer sustained. The word made flesh, the word that brought everything into existence, sustains these intercessory words on behalf of his own before the Father for eternity. The power of his word, the word of salvation in this prayer. I also want to share with you uh, one of my favorite commentaries in John. Uh, Arthur Pink says this, and I think he's not overdoing it. I think this is, this is how we should approach this text. He says, in John 17, the veil is drawn aside, and we are admitted with our great high priest into the holiest of all. Here we approach the secret place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Therefore, it behooves us to put off our shoes from our feet, listening with humble and reverent and prepared hearts, for the place whereon we now stand is indeed holy ground. So as I read, 
I want to do this over the next few weeks, and just so you know, we're going to spend four weeks in John 17, as we should. And we probably could have spent a lot more. We should have spent. A, we, we could have spent a lot more. But I want to read through the entire chapter, and I want to do that each of these four weeks, and I want to encourage you that throughout your week, meditate on this passage. Meditate on these words. Listen to the words of Jesus carefully. And as I read, there is such a tendency to approach Scripture with our preconceived ideas, who God is, how salvation has been accomplished, what I've always been told. And as we always should, let God's word interpret our thoughts, not the other way around. And so approach this. Listen to Jesus' words carefully. Because in this text, we get the nature of the Son communicating with the Father. In this text, we get a glimpse of the intimacy of the Son and the Father, the intentionality of Jesus, the intricate nature, the way he prays to the Father, um, and the certainty of which he prays. There is no doubt, there is no wavering with him. Because in this prayer, we get Jesus in a most personal manner as he addresses the Father in heaven, in his obedience as he submits to the will of the Father. In his, he is reverential. He calls the Father holy, and he calls the Father righteous. And he is theological. This text this morning and this text for the next few weeks is probably going to be more theological and more in, intricate than we have been in, in the past few weeks. past few weeks have been more practical. This is theological in nature, and we must treat it that way. And above all else, this prayer is highly intercessional. Meaning, he intercedes for praise on behalf of those who have been entrusted to him by the Father. The greatest concern of the Son is the glory of the Father, and that glory is even magnified in giving eternal life to those given to him by the Father. The goal and theme of this entire prayer is the glory of God. And as Jesus' highest concern, we should learn that that should be our highest concern as well. And so we're going to dig deep here, and so I hope you pay attention and you have your, your, your coffee this morning. And uh, again, if we get a little technical, it's because we must get this, and we must be precise on this. And I'll be honest, I do not feel adequate or worthy to approach this because I am speaking way above my, my pay grade in this text. But Jesus has given us these words. So we must thoughtfully and carefully walk through them. So let's begin reading in John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know that you are you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and I have come to know, excuse me, and, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. 
I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you gave, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these words I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I give to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Can't follow up that prayer, but I will attempt as we pray. Lord, how can anything that comes out of my mouth compare with what we just heard? And yet, by your Spirit, we can come before your throne. By the accomplished work of Christ, our mediator, our words are heard. Let us not take lightly the words that we're going to learn this morning. Let me not detract from your glory in any way. Let us walk away this morning with a renewed vigor and understanding of the glory of our God and the extent that our God would go to to glorify His name by saving wretched sinners like us. Let us look to Jesus, the high priest of our confession, the founder and perfecter of our faith, our intercessor, our Lord, our Savior, our King. May we learn from Him. May your, your word search and encourage and convict us. And may it all be to the praise of your glorious grace which you have bestowed on us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so one of the first things I want to do and one of the things I always tell us to do is look for repeated words so we can figure out what the emphasis is here. There's a lot of repetition in this passage. 
And so we're going to look at the first five verses today, and the first five verses are going to set up what we will be handling over the next three weeks, the next four weeks. And a lot of these concepts are going to be reiterated and re-emphasized. But I want to look at the repetition which we see in the first five verses, which we also see throughout the text. The word we see repeated here more, most often, we might gloss over, but it is world. Eighteen times Jesus mentions, mentions world in this prayer. And in every instance, it is in contrast to him and his disciples. Even the creation of the world is set apart from the glory that Christ has. His glory is shown in creation and redemption, but it is not dependent on it. His glory is shown in creation and redemption, but it is not dependent on it. And the world, by and large, is a system that hates him and hates his own. And we, the people here, praying for his own, are not to be like the world. Then we're going to see this language in our passage of give and given. This is throughout this entire prayer. We see that Jesus in his humanity recognizes that everything is given him by the Father. He has words that are, that are, that are given. He has authority that has been given. But what is mentioned most often is those who are given to him. His disciples, the elect, those who the Father has entrusted to him. Every time we see them and they, it is referring to the ones given. So this is that, that, that theme. And so the first thing we see is the contrast between the world and those given. But what we also see repeated here is glory. Jesus begins and ends our passage with this petition to the Father for glory. And this is not selfish as we will see this morning. This is, this is appropriate. But it is the Father's glory. That the Father shares with the Son. And Jesus will go on as we walk through this over the next few weeks. Talk about being glorified in them. Being glorified in the disciples. The glory that the Father has given to them. He wants to share with the disciples. And he asks at the very end this petition. Father, bring them where I am. That they may see my glory. Our, our gospel it's far too small. Yes, trust in Jesus and you will be forgiven from your sins. Yes, trust in him and you will have eternal life. Yes, trust in him and he will become your righteousness. Yes, trust in him and you will be adopted into his family. But trust in him. He wants you to see his glory. The glory of God. That is his prayer for us. This prayer by Jesus is a prayer to the Father on behalf of the ones given who are of the world, or excuse me, in the world, but not of the world for the glory of the Father. This is what we see, and we're going to walk through this as we unpack these. So we begin in verse 1 of chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, these words refer to the last three chapters, 14, 15, and 16. This upper room discourse, as, as people call it. After Judas leaves, the true disciples are still there. There's a word to them that still applies to us. After he spoke these words, all the words, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the hatred of the world, the abiding, the encouragement, the victory over the world, after he spoke these things... I love what Matthew Henry says here. He says the most remarkable prayer 
follows the most full and consoling discourse ever uttered on earth. That is not hyperbole. The most remarkable prayer follows the most full and consoling discourse ever uttered on earth. I think this is appropriate that the disciples make their declaration in verse 29 of chapter 16. Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. After saying these things, Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. Now, this has always struck me because we have been trained. I do not know why. I do not know where this started to close our eyes and, and, and bow our heads. And now certainly we should be reverential in our prayers. But whenever we see Jesus pray, he looks up to heaven, presumably with eyes open, gazed, fixed on the Father. We also see this throughout the Psalms. I look up to the hills where my help comes from. I look up to the God of the heavens. Having a conversation yesterday and was reminded that when we have our gaze fixed on the Father of heaven, we're not looking at our circumstances. We're not looking down at our feet and what is going on around us. And if we don't take the posture of prayer, let us take the principle of prayer that we look to God the Father, that all other things grow out of our view. I love that, that, that hymn that says, um, if we fix our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, um, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. That is the approach of prayer. That you see the glory of, of, of God. You are so overcome with it that everything else seems dim. And this is how Jesus approaches the Father. And this is how we should approach prayer. This is not the first time he does this. And so a lot of times we wonder what's going on here. From the context before and after, we know that Jesus is probably doing this right in view of the disciples. Doing this out loud, this is how John records these words. And again, this is not the first time he's done this. If you look at chapter 11, uh, when Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he does something very similar. If you look in John chapter 11, verse 40. So everyone's weeping. We know what's going on with, with Lazarus. If you want to look this up, uh, the sermon's on the website. Jesus says to Martha, Lazarus' sister, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He's doing the same thing here. Father, I know that you hear me. You always hear me. I don't have to say these words. We are one, but I say this on account of everyone standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. This is why we have this prayer recorded, and this is why we should pay attention. So he says, Father, the hour has come. 
Now, throughout the past few chapters in John, we've seen Jesus talk about this hour. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. This is the last time he mentions his hour because we are there. The hour is now here, this final hour. And if you haven't been with us or you haven't been paying attention, what is the hour? Jesus' hour. The climax of redemptive history. The darkest hour in history where the Son of Man, the Son of God, would be put on a cross for the sins of those who would have killed them with their own hands. That's us. With the vengeance of man and the wrath of God is poured out on him. That hour, the darkest hour in history, but had to precede the brightest hour in history where he is resurrected, where death could not hold him. Not only could death not hold him, but death would have no more sting. Death would have no more power because in that bright morning, he put to death, death and sin forever who put, for those who put their trust in him. That hour, the hour where the work of the Son and the plan of the Father are completed in his death and resurrection. But why that hour? How can there be glory in a bloody cross? And this is something that only our God could do and we could never understand because there is a way in which God, who is worthy of all glory and praise, who shares his glory with no one, who has had glory before time began, could receive more glory through a cross, could receive more glory by doing the impossible. By taking those who have no hope on their own, who are dead in their sins, raising them to new life. He receives glory at the cross, and we see His mercy, and we see His grace, and we see His love in ways we cannot see anywhere else. The cross and the resurrection of Christ is a picture of His glory that does not exist anywhere else. There was one part of God that humanity had not seen yet. His full and complete redemption. That is the glory of God on display on the cross. The final victory, the overcoming of sin and death, and the initiation of new creation. Where the kingdom of God that was in perfect pattern in the garden was, was broken and distorted through the fall now is being ushered in when Jesus says the kingdom of God is in your midst. It is him. Jesus is the kingdom of God. And through the cross and through redemption, he is building his kingdom, bringing the lost sheep home and put into motion the final stages of all redemptive history when one day his kingdom will be on full display when the heavenly Jerusalem comes down to earth and Jesus shows us his full glory as the temple of God where we dwell with him forever. That is the glory of God on the cross. Everything restarts and begins at that moment. And only our God could use our rebellion and our sin for his glory. Jesus, in his humility, and his humanity, submitted to taking on flesh. In order to accomplish the purpose of redemption by obeying the Father... But the glory that is rightfully his has been veiled up to this point. That's why he must pray 
Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. He has done everything on earth to glorify the Father, but there is His glory has been veiled from the eyes of the disciples. There is, but soon it will be unveiled. He says, glorify your Son. This is the only personal petition in this prayer. Glorify your Son. The only thing He asks for is glory. And yeah, He's asking for a lot. But when He does, it is still not self-serving. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even in asking for His own glory. His highest concern is the glory of the Father. His complete submission and obedience is our example. In this one petition, the glory of the Son is needed to accomplish all the rest. All of these other intercessory prayers mean nothing if the Son is not glorified. And we, we have to understand that. Because in order to intercede for his disciples, he must be exalted. He must be their mediator. He must be both God and man, the high priest for his people. He must be glorified first. But he, pray, he can pray with certainty, and he can intercede for them in certainty because he knows, even though it has not happened yet, it will happen, and it will be accomplished. He will set out what he started to. And so Jesus, as a glorified human, will become the high priest of humanity, yet at the same time retaining his full divinity so that he may glorify the Father. Again, feel completely inadequate to explain this and we could talk about this for weeks and months and let me tell you we will talk about this for eternity and never fully understand it but what we walk away from here is Jesus is deserving of glory and his greatest concern is the glory of the father not the glory of men he's not concerned with what they're going to say and not like many will tell you the glory of our salvation. Many people will, will make the cross all about us and be very selfish in this. He did everything for me. Yes, he did it for you because of the Father. His concern is, is the glory of God. Our salvation ultimately gives God more glory. And we should all rejoice in that. So yes, we should rejoice that the Savior would die for us. But don't make it all about us. Because Jesus didn't. And so how is it that the Son can glorify the Father on the cross? In His resurrection, the Father is glorified. In His ascension, He is seated with the Father in glory. And by making propitiation for sin and becoming our righteousness by the power of the Spirit, now we can glorify the Father. Not only is the Father glorified by Jesus' death and resurrection, but in our very lives we can bring God glory. So now the glory that God has had for eternity past, Jesus prays that that glory would be shared with us. Not that we become God, that's foolishness, but that our lives would be to the glory of God and that his praises would be sung in every tongue, tribe, and nation and God's glory would raise up through the heavens through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his intercession as their great high priest. This is what Jesus did for us. This is what Jesus did for the Father. So let's be careful when we desire to seek our own glory. Be careful when we desire that others think highly of us. 
Be careful when we make Christianity about what we've done or what others should do rather than what Christ has done. I know we talk about these things over and over and over again, but we must remind ourselves of this. We must get this. Christianity is not what you must do, but what Christ has done to the glory of God the Father. Verse 2. Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given, uh, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Since. What provision has been made for this glory? It's the authority of the Son. The authority provides for the glory. And so I want to break this down a little bit. Why did the Son have to be born among men? Because only... Someone who is truly man in the flesh could have authority over all flesh. He could be their king because he was one of them. He has authority as God and as man. He tells us in Matthew eleven twenty seven, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. He is fully God, fully man. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He has authority over all things. All things have been given to him. He has the the authority over all flesh. But as we'll see in this verse, he may have authority over all, but his affection and salvation is accomplished for those who have been given him. So what is the goal for this authority? Of course, he reigns supreme. He has authority over all. But the goal, as Jesus tells us here, out of the glory of the cross in full obedience, is the glory to give eternal life to whom has been given him. Now this causes some problems for people, so I want to break this down in the original language, and I want us to understand this. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you whom have been given him. Now, when we read this in English, we see given three times here. And it's important to know that these are translated have given and given because these are two different Greek verb tenses. And some of you cringe and some of you get excited when I, when I talk about Greek, but this is helpful for us to understand. Because the two that, ha- that are translated have given, these are the aorist tense, which is completed action in the past. These things are done. They are cemented in eternity past. They are completed. The two things that have been given, authority and those who have been given for eternal life. So Christ's authority is done in the past. The election of his people is done in the past. These two things have been completed. Done. But the third use here, to give eternal life. This is a perfect tense, which means that this happens and yet has continual effect ongoing. So eternal life is done, it is secured, yet it has continual effect. The authority's been given. The saints have been given in the same sense. When Christ was given authority, he was also given some by the Father. These two things are part and parcel with one another. And the eternal life he gives continues. And it is in full effect. And so... I want us to get that. And 
And yes, it seems like we're splitting hairs, and if this is over your head, that's okay. But if you have this question, if people bring this up, I want you to know how to be able to interpret these texts. And the most important thing I want you to see here is that redemption, salvation, election, all of it is a gift from the Father to the Son. This is this amazing divine transfer. Before it is anything for us, it was given from the Father to the Son before time began. This is not an afterthought. This is no reaction to anything we've done. We are not the object of this gift, of this transaction. God gives it to God, and we reap the benefits. Since you have given him authority, speaking of the Son, Jesus speaks in third person here. Don't get distracted by that. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know that the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Why does Jesus have to add this? Surely the Father knows what eternal life is. Jesus is not clarifying this for someone who doesn't know. Again, this is for the benefit of those who are listening, that they know what eternal life is. Throughout John, we see eternal life spoke of. And what is it? It is knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Repeat, say this again and again and again. What is eternal life? It is trusting in Christ. You cannot know God apart from Christ. You cannot separate these two. It is eternal life because if you truly know God, if you are truly hidden in Christ, you will know him forever. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Nothing can separate you from his love. If you truly know God, you will know him forever. And how can we be assured of that? Because he has authority over all flesh. He can do whatever he wants. If he secures you, no one can shake you. We must put all these things together. God's glory, Christ's authority, and our eternal life, they are weaved together. They are inseparable and they must be understood as a whole. How can I have eternal life? Simply put, Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. This is not empty lip service. This is not saying one thing and doing another, but this is wholehearted faith, trust, and love in the the true God of the universe and the one he sent, Jesus the Christ. Again, don't get caught up because Jesus speaks in the third person here. Just for those of you who do not know, Christ is not his last name. It is his title. It means the anointed one. Jesus the Christ. I am the anointed one that you sent. Put your trust in me. John expands on this a little bit in his first epistle. Chapter 5, he says this. This is of first and utmost importance, and he wants the church to know this. And this is the testimony. He speaks right before this about the testimony of Christ. That God gave us eternal life, and this is life in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is to be for our encouragement and our assurance. This is to set the record straight. Believe in God, believe also in me, and this is eternal life. Because if you truly have faith, it is unshakable. I can't explain to you what it's like to have that assurance. 
every one of us in this room that has that assurance. There is a peace and a rest that cannot be understood any other way. And if you do not have that assurance, we want that for you and we want to intercede for you. Jesus is also our example in intercession. We're going to get through this as he gets more specific with his disciples. His desire is that we know him. Behold his glory and we be one with one another and one with him as he and the Father are one. We want that assurance. And how is all this made possible? For those to have eternal life, Jesus must be glorified. For Jesus to be glorified, he must finish the work. He must be resurrected. He must be ascended and exalted for us to have eternal life. All of these things are woven in together. Now the exalted Christ can mediate for us and secure our salvation forever because he died to death in sin in our place. Again, theological, technical, but we have to get this. Jesus took time to teach on it and teach specifically on it, so we should pay attention. So verse 4 continues from verse 1, really, but also verse 2. Verse 3 is kind of a, a, a parenthetical note. He's talking about those who have been given for eternal life, and he tells the disciples uh, within their hearing, this is what eternal life is, and he, be, and he goes right back into his petition before the Father. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Again, his primary concern is that the Father is glorified. Everything Jesus did in the flesh, he did for the glory of God. I have glorified, completed on earth. Everything I've done has been for the glory of your name. He perfectly fulfilled the law so that he could become the perfect sacrifice, so he could glorify the name of the Father so that on the cross he could accomplish the glory that he shares with us. That's the immediate and the the ultimate accomplishment. How is all that possible? It cannot be done without the cross. So Jesus says, I have glorified you on earth. He had to come to earth. He had to do these things as a man to make intercession for man, to be their high priest. I've accomplished on earth the work that you have given me to do. Jesus told us early on in his ministry that the work that the Father gave him was his very food. That is what nourished him. That is what sustained him. He lives to do the work of the Father. The Father gave him work to do. He accomplished that work for those who the Father gave him. All of Jesus' ministry, everything is a work within the Godhead, Father and Son working together to accomplish the purpose of God. I accomplished all, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. There's nothing left undone. Remember his last words, it is finished. Remember that the, the ministry of Christ is not incomplete. There is nothing that is lacking. The Father gave the Son work to do. Eternal salvation for those given him, and he accomplished it perfectly. He came to do exactly what he set out to do. Many people try to make apologies for Jesus and make him out to be the, the, the victim in this, or try to, try to do something Jesus never did. 
Jesus never tried to change political climate. Jesus never healed everyone. Jesus never preached to everyone. Jesus came for a specific purpose, and he accomplished it. So I just want to back up for a moment. This is why it is blasphemous, and it is shameful when people would require further works than when Christ, what Christ has done. Eternal life is believing in God through the Messiah, the Anointed One, and the Messiah, all of his finished works. Who are we to add to the work of Christ? But shamefully, so many people call themselves Christians and try to add to the work of Christ. Well, Jesus made it possible, but you must still do X, Y, and Z. Blasphemous. Jesus finished it perfectly. If anyone tells you that Jesus is not enough, Jesus did not do enough, or you must do more, they are a liar. They're a false prophet, and they're calling Jesus a liar. If Jesus says he accomplished all the work and you said no, he didn't, who do we believe? Please do not be led astray to people who try to add our own efforts to the accomplished work of Christ. Many people do it under the name of Christ, and they are liars. So he closes here in verse 5. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Now, the same hour that has come upon them, now, he knows that the glory that he set aside to take on flesh, the glory that has been rightfully his throughout all eternity, now will be united to his rightful place. For this, it's interesting here. And now, Father, glorify me. Jesus has every right to exalt himself. Jesus has every right to lift himself up as he could. But just like he didn't allow the devil to do it in the wilderness, he would not exalt himself. He submits in his flesh to God the Father to be the perfect example of submission and obedience for us. This language here, glorify me in your own presence. It is literally glorify me by the side of yourself. Right next to you where I belong. Give me the glory that is equal to you. Give me the glory. Put me back where I belong. I have accomplished it all. I'm going to go home to be with you. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you. Past tense. Jesus has always had glory. He does not need to earn glory. His pre-incarnate glory, which he set aside to come to earth to accomplish the work of the Father, which he has done, and now he goes back to be with the Father to receive glory in heaven. And that glory he had before the world existed. God's glory is unchanging and undivided. Jesus is rightfully going back, and we see the glory of the Godhead laid out here. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, fully worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And Jesus, for a moment, takes on flesh, which seems less glorious, but at the end of it, will accomplish a work that results in more glory for God the Father that we may glorify our God by the words of our tongue. I said this earlier, God's glory is shown by his creation and his redemption, but it is not dependent on it. We must know that. 
God does not need anything added to himself, but God chooses to reveal a portion of himself that can only be understood in the context of sin and depravity and hurt and pain and death by overcoming sin and depravity and hurt and pain and death. Jesus, in his desire to glorify the Father, knows that his rightful place is by the Father. So, I want you to be aware of this. Because, for very practical purposes, if you live in Sanford, the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door probably every other week. And when you sit outside, they will do backflips and, and somersaults and all kinds of theological uh, gymnastics to try to say that Jesus is not God. They will say that Jesus is, is another God. Jesus is a lesser God. Jesus is not God again and again and again. And it is so heartbreaking and so shameful that you plead with them and proclaim the gospel to them. A Jesus who is not God cannot save. A Jesus who did not pay the final price for sin. A Jesus who did not accomplish the work of the Father cannot save. And this is what I pleaded with this man and woman who were in my driveway a couple weeks ago. One bold man, I said, I have assurance of salvation because Jesus finished it. Do you have assurance of salvation? Do you know that if you, if you trust in him, you will be with him? His answer was, well, I'm, I'm 99% sure because I'm not perfect. That is the height of arrogance. This man, on his own strength, thinks he's 99% righteous. That is a fool. And I plead with him every time, put your faith in Christ. Trust in his finished work. You don't have to put on this monkey show and walk up and down streets trying to, con trying to convince someone of a gospel that cannot save. But if you don't understand this, your gospel has no power. I want to close with this passage in Philippians chapter 2. We love Philippians chapter 2 because Philippians gives us this whole process of Jesus in his full divinity taking on flesh and then bringing, uh, being exalted again on high where he should be. Philippians chapter 2, meditate on this, know this. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, have this in mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Still speaking of Jesus here, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Now, they would try to explain this away, but this is clear language, that he is in the form of God. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He could have stayed in his glory and been perfectly in glory forever and never created us and never created anything else and would be lacking nothing. But... He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the like, likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, glorify me. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How does God receive more glory? The exalted Christ now can 
put on the tongue every tribe and nation. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what this entire passage is about. So before we close, just consider the words, famous words of C.S. Lewis. This is who Jesus claims to be. This is who Jesus says, I am. And we must believe one of three things about him. He is either a liar, because either Jesus finished and accomplished the work of the Father and has given eternal life who the Father has given to him, or he is a liar. Or he's just a nut. He's a plain lunatic who believes, who has this God complex, who has created all this so people will really love him. He's either a liar or a lunatic. Or he is who he says he is. He is Lord. You must decide who is Jesus. If you believe something else, you think that he's a liar or a lunatic. Or that he is Lord. Who Christ is and what he has done is of the utmost importance to us. We should study these words like our life depend on it. Because they do. You either believe in Christ and you are hidden in him and are his forever. Or you are of the world. There is no life apart from him. And so like Jesus... We should do everything to the praise and glory of our Father. Because we are not Jesus, we do everything to the praise and glory of our King. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for revealing this to us. Thank you that the veil has been lifted. Thank you for opening up this divine conversation for us. Forgive us when we seek our own glory. Forgive us when we worship a God created in our own image. Forgive us when we trust in things but do not trust in you. Lord, forgive me if I've confused this or done anything to undermine the glory that you so rightly deserve. I am not worthy to be your messenger. But thank you for your Holy Spirit who utters and interprets and intercedes within us. Thank you for your Son who is our mediator, our high priest, our intercessor who accomplished your work for your glory that we might have eternal life. This is the gospel. This is our very life and our breath. Let us be a people who know this and, and apply it and take our assurance in it because of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.